worship with us. Let's stand and let's sing together. first service. All right, y'all go ahead and have a seat. Um, listen, uh, welcome to week four of our Let's Talk Mental Health series. And um, this is a series we're doing with two other churches, Grace Point and uh, um, Countryside. Man, I have become Nate Bruns. Okay, Countryside uh, Christian Church. And uh, Rick and I were talking about, uh, particularly this week, and the topic, and a song came up. Um, do we have any Dave Matthew Bands fans? Okay, we got okay. Yes. So if you're uh, if you're if you're if you're one of us, uh, it, it was 2000. It was the year 2000, and um, they did a series of songs. It was called the Lily White Session. Lily White Session, and uh, it got leaked. And those that didn't love Jesus may have illegally downloaded that album. Uh, 
Napster forever. Okay. Uh, and and on that on those recordings were a bunch of they're just great songs. I still think it's some of the best stuff he's he's written. Um, and they finally had to release it. So in 2002, they put it on an album, and the album's called Busted Stuff. And it just talks about just busted life, great songs that deal with just hard stuff of life. So Grace is Gone, Bartender, Where Are You Going? And there's another song on that that's probably my all-time favorite uh, DMB song, and it's called Gray Street. And it asks the question of, of how do you get off of living on the corner of Gray Street and the end of the world? And we had to play this song. Um, and so Rick's going to do the song for us, and it's a perfect way to start our conversation about mental health. Now, those of you that are watching online, we'll get to see you in about three minutes and 37 seconds, because you are not going to be able to see this because we are not able to stream this song legally. Apparently, this is repentance for all the illegal downloads we did back in the early 2000s. <laughs> Uh, we had planned to stream it. Rick and I were not going to ask uh, any questions. We were just going to stream it, thinking that our licenses would cover it. But apparently, we have a Boy Scout on staff with the name Cullen Swearingen. <laughs> so since Cullen asked the question and we realized that we did not have the licensing to perform this song, you will get to look at a nice blank screen, or you can go to YouTube and watch the live version that he did at Piedmont. So, yep. you ready? ready? All right. Gray Street. <laughs>
I know, man. Hey, you know the next song on that album? Where are you going? Yeah. Over here. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's so funny. Okay. Uh, th- this is the question that we've kind of been building up to through this whole series. And uh, I, the team kind of knows this. I've really wrestled with this message. This is like the one message I'm like, I don't want uh, I don't, I don't to do this message. This is the one I don't want to do because... It's, it's, it's nuanced, it's complicated. Because when you start trying to answer the question of how do we get out of Gray Street, it can, it can become very formulaic, right? It, it, it can almost be do these seven steps and your life will be better. And most of us have been around the block a few times to know it doesn't always work that way. So that's the wrestle match that I'm having with this message and talking about mental health. Now, I will say that I do believe there is a path to mental health, to be healthy in how we handle stress, trauma, anxiety, fear, all those things. I absolutely believe it's possible to live in a space where you can handle these things in a healthy manner. That doesn't mean that we won't experience stress, trauma, anxiety, fear, right? That, that's, not, that's not possible, <laughs> okay? But I do think there's a path to it. And uh, psychologists and social sciences over the years have done centuries worth of studies to try to answer this question. What is it that can help people live in a place of mental health? And they keep coming back, all of these studies over hundreds of years, they've had seven lists, they've had lists of five, they've had lists of eight, but there are four key components that they always come back to. There are these four common traits that are true for every single study that they have ever done on mental health, and people that are mentally healthy have these four common things about them. They have a sense of hope. They have a sense of hope. The second thing, they think that life has purpose. They have a purpose in their life. And then the next thing is related to it. It's closely related to it, but I want to make sure it's distinct. Not just that life has a purpose, but that their work and their place in that purpose has meaning. It's meaningful work that goes towards this purpose. And then the fourth component is a sense of belonging. They, they feel like they belong to something larger than themselves, that they matter. And these four things have been true hundreds and hundreds of years of study. And this is a really good list. I like this list. But I also will admit to you, it doesn't fully answer the question of how do we get off of Gray Street? Because we still have to ask the question, where do you get your hope? Where do you get your purpose? Where do you find meaningful work? How do you understand and who do you belong to? Now, the National Congress of of Behavioral Institute, it's based in the UK, uh, they have done, uh, they did a study in the last uh, 10 years. They looked at 326 different research studies over the last 20 years, 326 of them. And their question was, what are the most effective ways to find hope, purpose, meaning, and belonging, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, we have entire industries built on you finding hope. I did not know that I needed an air fryer. But apparently, this has given my life new purpose and meaning, right? I mean, it's like, you you see what I'm saying? It's like, there's entire industries built on, if you do this, buy this, participate in this, then you will find hope, purpose, meaning, and belonging, right? And so so there's entire industries on this. And so this wanted to look at the question, okay, well, what, what provides the most? Like, what's the highest percentage that brings hope, meaning, purpose, and belonging? And it's not a shock, it shouldn't be a shock, that this is what they found. They looked and they found that there is an 82% positive rate of hope and faith, spirituality. There's an 82% connection on that. 
82% that 82% of people who are that they said were mentally healthy had a faith or spiritual base tied to that hope. When you start talking about meaningful work and purpose and belonging, that number jumped to 93%. Now, in social sciences, this, these are astronomical numbers. These are just these are ridiculous numbers of the of the connection between faith and hope, meaning, purpose and belonging. Now, having said that, this would be a great time for me to preach the very message that I said I would not preach at the start of this series. If you believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. Amen. Amen with an asterisk. <laughs> right? It, 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 we have to be true to what Jesus says too, Right? Because Jesus tells us, in this life, you will have many troubles. Many troubles. Amen. Amen, right? <laughs> right? So, so I, I want to make sure we have this understanding, right? Because I, I don't want you walking out of here thinking, well, Jesus is your good luck charm to take care of your stress, anxiety, and fear. Because A, that, that doesn't happen in the real world, and B, that's not even what Jesus himself promised you. He said that he would be with you. Huh? He said that he would give you tools. He would change who you are. He would, give you, he, would, he would help you navigate these things. But he didn't say you would not have them. So let me just say a couple of things before we get into the meat of the text this morning. Because I want to make sure that, that we kind of lay some ground rules out so that you know, you know what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I think it is possible to find hope, purpose, meaning, and belonging outside of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's possible. Millions and millions of mentally healthy people do not follow Jesus Christ. So it is possible to not follow Jesus Christ and be mentally healthy. Okay? It is also possible to be a Jesus-loving, devoted Christ follower and be mentally unhealthy. No amens on that one. Okay. Right, I just, the reason I'm saying all this is I just kind of want to set the stage because I don't want us walking out of here thinking that Christianity makes someone immune to mental illness. There are tools that we can learn to deal with the stress of life. There are processes that we can learn. We can even learn some of these things from non-Christians because all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Listen, is it really surprising that hope Purpose, meaningful work, and belonging are so important to good mental health? No. Do you think that surprised, do you think that shocked God back in the early 1800s when they started figuring that out? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? No, God made humanity fearfully and wonderfully, physically, emotionally, mentally. This, this, this beautiful mix and he created us in his image for relationship both with him and with others. And so this truth that we need hope and purpose and meaning and belonging was God's truth from the very beginning. And if you read the story of the scriptures, this is what God does with humanity all through the story as they navigate the effects and consequences of their sin to give them hope to give them purpose, to give them meaning, to give them belonging. So all truth is God's truth. But I also believe this. I believe that a faith in Christ grounded in the spiritual practices puts us on the best path to being mentally healthy. It's not the only path, but I think it's the best path. Now, I know I need to do a little bit of disclaimers here and start hanging little asterisk signs on this statement, but so I want to make sure everybody understands what I'm saying. When I talk about spiritual practices, I know that that comes with a lot of baggage. 
Now, some of you may have heard the term spiritual disciplines, right? I don't like that word because I'm not a disciplined person. I'm, I'm kind of disciplined. I'm disciplined in some things and then not so disciplined in others. But I can practice. I'm really good at practice, right? Is that, you see what I'm saying? You see the difference? It's like, I, I can practice. I'm good. Practice? Oh, yeah. I can practice. Whew. I need all the practice I can get. <laughs> so, so that's one reason why I use the term spiritual practice. And when I say spiritual practice, these are things and activities that put us in the presence of Jesus. They put us in the presence of Jesus. They're not complicated. They're things that you already know. They're things that we teach about. They're things that we kind of walk you through every single week. Prayer. Scriptures, worship, solitude, silence, rest. We did, we did a whole series. We're going to do another series in the fall. We, 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 these are practices. They put us in the presence of Jesus. They're not complicated, but they do require some intentionality. Uh, here's another thing I want to be kind of clear on. The spiritual practices in and of themselves they do not give hope, purpose, meaning, and belonging. You can spend hours and hours in quiet time, and it is not going to give you hope, meaning, purpose, and belonging. The fact that you are in the presence of Jesus, okay, this is an important distinction. The fact that it puts you in the presence of Jesus, and now Jesus can begin to give you hope, meaning, purpose, and belonging. It's important to make this distinction because while the practices can calm you down and they're great tools to lower your blood pressure and they're, they're fantastic ways to, to handle change and trauma, those are great things. And, and yes, those are some of the benefits of some of these practices. The real value of the practices of themselves is that they put us in the presence of Jesus to be comforted by him, to be changed by him, sometimes to be challenged by him. It allows us to experience the truth that the scriptures teach us that even though this life is filled with trouble, he is with us always. That's the value of the spiritual practices. Now, I realize that this also comes with another elephant in the room. And I think there's two, I think there's two extremes, there's two errors that we make when it comes to the practices. And the first error is this. The first error is this. The first error says this. Man, those spiritual practices are so far out of reach. That's for like the uber spiritual Obi-Wan, Yoda, whatever your favorite cartoon is. Like that's for, that's for that. Right? There's no way I could ever, I could ever have a life lived out of the overflow of the spiritual practices. I am not wearing brown robes and living on the, you know, living a life of a monk. Like I'm not like that, that's, that, that's not going to happen. I, that's unattainable. That, that is an error. That is an error in thought. And so we're going to correct some of that today. But I think there's another error that probably most of us in this room are guilty of. And that's this, that the spiritual practices don't make a difference. I think in our culture, we have severely underestimated the benefit of spiritual practices in our life. We have exchanged hurry and efficiency for time and connection with Jesus. And it's killing us. So those are the two errors that I, that I see us making. And we have to avoid these errors. We can't underestimate the importance of the practices. Now, I'm a practical guy. Uh, I, I have to have pictures. I, I, I have to see it. So I want to take you on a journey today on a one day, one day in the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at this day 
And we're going to look at how he weaves the practices in his life so effortlessly that you're going to go, holy cow, I've never saw that before. And you're going to be able to see that a life lived out of the overflow of the spiritual practices may not be as far-fetched and out of reach as you think it is. Is that fair? You willing to take that journey with me? Okay. We're going to take a day in the life of Jesus. I think it's the second most stressful day of Jesus' life. The first one being Good Friday. It's going to be really hard to compete with the stress of that day. But this is the second stressful day. It's told in three different places in the gospel. Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and John chapter 6. This is a 24-hour period. This is how the 24-hour period starts. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 14. Here's how it goes. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. This is how the day starts. What did he hear? Well, Mark chapter 6 gives us the background. A couple of months prior to this day, Jesus had broken up the disciples paired them off two by two, sent them on a mission trip, sent them out into the countryside around the Sea of Galilee, told them to preach the gospel, told them to minister to people, told them to heal. So they do this. They go to this place. They're coming back to Capernaum. They're coming back to their hometown here. And they have, they've got a plan that they're going to meet with Jesus and they're going to report to Jesus all that happened. So good news, good vibes, good happening. However, as they were traveling, they also got other news and they brought the other news with them to tell Jesus. And what was that other news that they heard about? And when Jesus heard about it, it forced him to withdraw with his disciples by boat to get alone to deal with it. The execution of his cousin, John the Baptist by King Herod. Yeah. So yeah, he's getting all this good news, but then somebody says, hey man, did you hear about John? John. Jesus' cousin. John and Jesus' stories were interlinked from the very beginning. Mary and Elizabeth pregnant together, right? John is born. He, he begins to tell people the, he's the forerunner, that the, the Messiah is coming, the one is coming, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, who baptizes Jesus, this John, this John. He preaches this message, then he ends up getting arrested by King Herod. And over the course of time, this he finds himself, he finally gets beheaded. He gets executed by King Herod. And Jesus hears about it on this day. Now, why did this have such an impact? Well, obviously it's his cousin, but there's another reason why this has an impact. Up until this point in the story, the disciples have upset a few synagogue leaders. They've stirred the pot with some of the religious elite. They've kind of upset the authorities in Jerusalem. But now, today, there's a Roman political leader that has executed John the Baptist. Today, it got real. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments in your life where, okay, this just got real moment. I remember when I was in the military and, you know, it's all fun and games. And they're teaching you all this stuff. And I remember when we had our first live fire as a combat engineer and we had someone fall off one of the back of our uh, vehicles, lost in the dust, died. That was my, this is no longer a game moment for me. This just got real, Right? Maybe, maybe you've had one of those moments in your life where everything's going along fine and then this just got real. This is that moment. And it, Jesus uses the spiritual practice of solitude in nature and he pulls, he pulls them out. Well, something happens as they're, as, they, as they're withdrawing and they're getting on the boat, they're cutting across the bottom part of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're cutting across the bottom part of the Sea of Galilee, people start knowing, well, they're not going here. There's only one port on the other side. So rumor and word start spreading. The crowds start racing and they get to the port where Jesus and the disciples are before Jesus and the disciples get there. 
So when Jesus and the disciples get to this port and they're expecting to have this day of retreat and silence and solitude to spend with God, when they get there, this is what they see. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So just, want, just get this in your head. The disciples are going, we get to spend the day with Jesus. And uh, no, we don't. Okay, got a crowd. Jesus has compassion on them. Again, the spiritual practices of teaching and compassion, of ministering. And so they do this. The evening is coming, the evening is coming, and this is one of my favorite scenes in scripture. The evening is coming and the disciples decide to go to Jesus to tell Jesus what to do next. This is great. The disciples go to Jesus and they go, hey man, it's getting late. Like Jesus couldn't tell time. And it's getting late, so you need to send all these people home. Um, so they can get food and they get rest. And then we can go about what we were going to do. And Jesus, I don't, I don't know if Jesus, I don't know if, Je- I hope Jesus, I think Jesus had a little bit of sarcasm in him. I really hope he does. Otherwise, I'm in a lot of trouble. But, but I think there's a moment where Jesus is kind of going, huh, you tell you tell me something. <laughs> you guys figure out how to feed him. This is what Jesus tells them. You, you feed them. You go figure out. Of course, Thomas, he's on the finance team. He has to figure out it takes X amount of dollars to feed them all. So that's his first response. And the other guy's just like, man, we don't, we don't, we don't, how are we going to feed? And in the other miracle of the story, the only Israelite boy whose mom packed the lunch shows up with, you know, loaves and fishes. Like he's the only kid. Or he's the only kid that's going to share it. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So it's setting it up for this miracle. Look what happens next, Mark 6, 41. So Jesus, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. There's a blessing there, there's prayer. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, you really need to. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. So Jesus, I just want you to see, Jesus breaking the food, Blessing the food, he gives it to his disciples, and then his disciples take it to the people. Now, why do I think this is important? Why do I think this is interesting? I'm not sure if the crowd understood what was happening. I'm not sure the crowd knew that there was a miracle taking place. Like, I'm not sure they knew how Jesus was taking care of them and meeting their needs, a need that they didn't even know that they had. Did you, you see? I think sometimes Jesus just takes care of things. Our faith in Christ, sometimes God just takes care of us in ways that we have no idea that he's taking care of us. Like we can't see it in the moment what's happening. We're just living it. And I think for the vast majority of people in this story, this is exactly what's happening. Jesus is providing something for them. He's, he's taking care of them in a way that they, like they don't even know. The disciples knew. The disciples knew. Because they kept breaking the bread and they kept passing it out and they kept going, man, the food. Nobody say a word to Jesus. <laughs> don't break the streak, right? It's like, don't. They knew what was going on. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. So we see generosity, acts of service, the, the, the act of resting, the act of food, the act of eating. And I love the fact that Jesus makes sure that every single disciple got a leftover basket of food. He's teaching them that there is nourishment when you serve. Yes, when you serve, it's exhausting, it's tiring. Yes, when you serve, it requires energy. But there's always gonna be a leftover basket for you. And I love the fact that it's 12 of them because I think there's two, so I think that's one reason. He's reminding them when you serve, something happens. You're gonna get replentished when you serve. But I also think Jesus is, just being very, very practical. He knows that this day is not over. 
You see, the disciples hadn't eaten either. The day's not over. So I'm going to make sure that each one of these guys has a basket so that A, they remember that I said, I told you so. And B, when they get hungry a little later, they're going to have what they need. John chapter 6 gives us a little bit more detail in the story. After the people had, had eaten and they were all satisfied, okay, uh, um, they, they, um, they come and now they're going to try to make Jesus king. And they're responding to the message that Jesus is teaching, that he is, he is the one and that this is the time that, that all of Scripture is pointing to. And they're coming to make him king. And this is how it unfolds in John chapter 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Solitude, silence, prayer. I think this happens a lot even in our own faith journey. People have their own agenda for Jesus and it's different than Jesus' own agenda. I've got an agenda for Jesus. Jesus needs to do this. Jesus needs to do this for me. This is the way Jesus ought to be. And Jesus goes, you are not even thinking on the same plane that I am on. Jesus, we have a corrupt government. We have a wrong, this government that killed your cousin, that killed your John the Baptist, that, that guy needs to go. You need to take his place. And Jesus says, that's not what I came to earth for. You do not have the things of, of God in your heart. And Jesus withdraws. There's gonna be times in our walk with Jesus where we're having an agenda for Jesus and, it, and it's not working. And it's gonna feel like you just keep hitting this wall. And it's not that Jesus has withdrawn from your life. He's not going to withdraw from your life. But he may just stand there and just wait until you figure out this wall is not moving. He's king. I'm not. The disciples, as Jesus withdraws and he goes up on the mountaintop to pray, he sets his disciples in a boat and says, go back home to Capernaum. Go back. Go back home. And they're like, finally. This is glad to be out of this day. And they're, they're all fishermen. They all grew up on the Sea of Galilee. So them taking the boat back to Capernaum in the middle of the night, not a big deal. We do this all the time. This is what we do. We live on the water. But a storm comes up and a wind comes up and they find themselves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee rowing in the same place for three hours. Listen, you know it's a bad storm when fishermen aren't fishing and they get nervous on the water. You, you know it's bad. And this is where they were at. Mark 6 gives us a little, listen to how Mark describes this. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them very early in the morning. So he did do this all night. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. There's a lot of things in scripture that I don't understand and it makes me nervous. And then there's things in scripture that I do understand and it makes me nervous. Like Jesus had every intention of going, huh, this is a really hard day for them. I'll catch them in Capernaum. <laughs> why? I mean, I, I, I'm really asking, I don't know why Jesus, like why didn't he go into the boat to help them out? It's like, well, okay, well, I'll catch up with them. He turns to them when they call out to him. They have to practice the spiritual practice of calling out to Jesus. And he gets in the boat and the scriptures tell us that the wind and the waves stop. There's encouragement here. And the scriptures also tell us that when it stopped, they worshiped. They worshiped him there. This is kind of how the day ends. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout the region and began carrying the sick on mats to wherever he heard he was. Ministry, serving others, here we go again. I want to ask you a couple of questions that are going to make us a little uncomfortable this morning. If you had to navigate a day like that, do you think that you have the bandwidth, the tools to navigate a day? 
like that. I'll tell you that at some point, I think, yeah, sure, sure. And then there's other days where I would go, mm, no, not today. Did you notice, did you know, I want to bring up what I said at the beginning of the message. A faith grounded in the, practice, in the spiritual practice puts us on the best path to being mentally healthy. Did you notice throughout the story how effortlessly Jesus would weave in and out of these practices? Did you notice that? Did, did you notice that there wasn't this, I am now going to practice the spiritual act of generosity. I am now going to be solitude. I, I mean, Jesus didn't make these grand pronouncements. He goes, okay, now I'm going to do this. No, it's just, it was just a part of, right? he's just, okay, this is what we're going to do. This happens, this is how I'm going to deal with it. And at the very least, we have to say this. At the very least, we, we, we have to say this. At the very least, Jesus was setting us a model of what it meant to live out of the overflow of our relationship with the Father. At the very least. At the very least, you have to say, this is what Jesus was trying to pound into the head of the disciples. Of living out of the overflow of your presence, of how you spend your presence with Jesus, how you spend your time with the Father. And another thing to notice during this whole time, the stress, the anxiety, the fear, the trauma doesn't stop. They tell Jesus about John. He gets in the boat to the other side. Guess what's waiting for him? A crowd full of people who have needs. Okay. We deal with all those needs. Okay, we get done. Guess what's waiting for him? A movement to make something happen that Jesus knew wasn't going to happen, to make him king. That's not going to happen. Okay. He withdraws. He's walking to the other side. There is a literal storm, a literal storm that his disciples are in the middle of. They get to the other side. Guess what's waiting for them? Ministries, storms, stress. It doesn't stop. Living in the presence of Jesus, living out of the overflow of our presence of the Father does not make us immune to stress, anxiety, and fear, does it? Well, if it doesn't, Grant, what's the difference? The difference is how he changes you to be. That's the difference. It's not that he takes it away. He changes who you are. He changes how you think about yourself. Changes how you deal with things. And these practices gives you practice. That's the difference. Does it work? Yeah. And again, it wasn't the practices that gave hope, purpose, meaning, and belonging. Jesus gives us hope. The person of Jesus who says, I am returning, and when I return, I will set the world right, and I will wipe away every tear. I will wipe away every tear. There is not one tear that Jesus will not wipe away. You have not cried one tear in vain. That should give you hope. Jesus gives us purpose to help reconcile the world to him. And then Jesus gives us gifts. He gives us relationships. He gives us a place to have meaningful, eternal, impacting work in the middle of that purpose. And he does all of this because he changes our identity and who we belong to. I belong to him.
you're a hot mess. Yes, I am, but I'm his hot mess. <laughs> this week, um, many of you may remember my good friend, Don Don from Manila. Um, Don Don... Uh, if you don't know who Don Don is, Don Don was one of the first guys I met when I first went to Manila, worked in a trash dump. He was a mob enforcer. He was the guy that Pastor Mateo led to Christ because he was an enforcer. He says, I'm gonna teach you what I'm teaching the folks so that you know what I'm doing. And as a course of that, Don Don accepts Christ. And then Don Don, when the police changed, when the, when the police changed and, and they became, the, the corrupt police came in and became rulers over the trash dump area and they were nervous about this pastor. It was Don Don that went to them and said, I tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna come in every week and I'm gonna teach you every single thing that I'm teaching at the church so that you know exactly what I'm teaching. He basically tricked them into having a weekly Bible study, right? And he'd been doing this for years. This is my friend Don Don. I found out this week that while playing basketball with a bunch of teenagers in one of the trash dumps, Don Don uh, passed out and died this week. And it, it wrecked me. Like I got that email and I was just like, like I couldn't answer the phone. Like I was like, no, like I'm, I'm sitting in Barnes and Noble by myself and I'm like, I hope nobody comes in this store because I am just like, oh, I'm not crying. And then just, and, then, and like this lasted for like, it felt like forever. This is, and then all of a sudden I start laughing. I just start giggling. Now, why? What's going on? Don Don is five foot five. He's five foot five. We don't know how old he is. He's somewhere between 45 and 65. Like he's like, he's not young, right? I mean, that, that, there he is. That, that picture was taken two years ago, right? He's playing basketball with teenagers in a trash dump. Why? Like, what is he doing? I just start laughing. I know what he's doing. Since his identity has been changed and he knows he belongs to Jesus, he knows that his purpose in life is to reconcile people to Christ. He knows that every single relationship that he builds, every single conversation that he has is meaningful to that end. And that has given him so much hope. That has given him so much purpose. And he just infects this with every single person that he comes around. Am I sad that Don Don is dead? A absolutely, I'm sad. Uh, yes, I miss my friend. But it does not stress me out. That's the difference. That's the difference that a life with the spiritual practices can make. Doesn't take away the grief, doesn't take away the hurt, but I think... I think it can add a dash of laughter and a dash of perspective. And sometimes that's all you need. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, you know how much I wrestled with this message and you know that I am not a fan of easy answers and quick fixes. So Father, I pray for us this morning as we hear a message that talks about mental health and steps and processes and, and ways to get on a path to be mentally healthy. I, I just pray that, that um, I just pray that it was received and that it was spoken in a way that not only just honors you, but, it's, but it was what you wanted I'm so thankful for your truth of that we will have troubles because I can also trust the truth when you tell us that you will be with us in those troubles. I'm so thankful for the grace that you consistently pour on us, taking care of us even in ways we can't see. 
walking with us through some of the darkest places that we, that we just thought, man, God can't be here. And you go, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Father, for those of us that are looking for a way to get healthy, looking for a way to be on a path to becoming healthy, would you give us some rails? Would you give us some, some walkways on taking this journey of living out of the overflow of being in your presence? So, Father, speak and nudge and move. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. You, you may be, we're going to respond in, in some worship this morning. and You may be asking the question, okay, that, that's great, Grant, but I, like, I don't even know where to start. Like how do you start building a life, living out of the overflow of these spiritual practices? I, I want to give you just three, just three simple starting places. The first one is this. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the spiritual practices will mean absolutely nothing to you. Oh, they may calm you down. They may get you a place of centering. But you need to know Jesus. You need to begin living out of the reality of how crazy he is about you. That he loves you, that he sees you as a kid of the king, that his hope and desire for you is to make you more like him, to give you an identity that's rock solid, not one that's built on a lie. And so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love to be able to take that first step with you. I've got some folks in the back. When the band plays, you can slip out and just meet us in the back. We'd be glad to introduce you to Jesus. There's no shame here on that. Second thing is, some of you are trying to deal with life and trying to get mentally healthy and trying to figure out what it means to walk with Jesus and do spiritual practices, and you're trying to do it all by yourself. And I just, I just want to save you the heartache. You can't do it. <laughs> You're going to need others with you. And maybe that's getting involved in a connect group. Maybe it's just finding someone to disciple you. Maybe it's finding just someone to go through some spiritual practices with you. But we can help make that connection for you. We can help put somebody in your life to go, hey, man, this is where, this is where I'm at. I'm not comfortable with going to a group. Cool. Let me introduce you to a couple of folks. Maybe you'll relate to them. But some of you need community. You cannot walk this alone. So that's an option. Here's the third option. This one's super easy. This one's just kind of where I'm at. Uh, the beginning of the year, Psalm 2713 kind of pinged me, right? I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. I'm stuck in this spiritual practice right now. I get up thinking about that verse. When I eat, I think about that verse. When, when I sit down, I think about that verse. Before I go to bed at night, I think about that verse. When something happens during the day that interrupts my schedule, I've conditioned my brain now to think about, okay, is this, is this the Lord's goodness in the land of the living? How can I be the Lord's goodness in the land of the living? I'm confident that I, right? This verse, this is, just, this is just one simple practice I'm talking about. You find one of these verses and you latch onto it with everything you got. And you start praying that every day and you start praying that every minute and you start asking God, okay, make this a reality. How does this look like? Is this one of those things? Is this one it works? And God has an annoying habit of answering prayers after you've prayed them a thousand times. He started answering and then you take the next step. So there's three things that you can do to start this journey. And we'd love to take it with you. Let's stand and let's worship together.
was buried that I was buried beneath my shame who could carry that kind of weight it was my soul till I'm for joining us for worship today. So glad you're here. If you're a guest of ours, we're especially glad you're here. We've got some connection cards on the chairs, every other chair or so. We'd love for you to fill that out so that we can know that you were here today. Uh, if you can fill that out and drop it off in the south lobby at the welcome table, that's gonna be the new spot for connection card drops off. So south lobby welcome table. Again, thank you so much for being here. Let's read our blessing together as we go out of this place. In Christ, you go nowhere alone. Wherever you go, God is there. Wherever you are, God can work through you. He gives purpose to your being there. Christ, who dwells in you, has something to do through you where you are. Believe this and go in his grace, love, and power. Go be the church. Have a great week.